Well, this morning we do get back into our study of the book of Acts, uh, our brief study of the book of Acts. Uh, we're jumping around a little bit here and there, and we'll be doing that for the most of the summer, taking a look at really some important doctrines that the book of Acts lays out. And the book of Acts is a doctrinal book. We sometimes overlook that a little bit when we read Acts or go through Acts and look at it, but because Acts is about the new church and about the church beginning, uh, clearly there are a bunch of doctrinal things in there because God wants us to understand how to practice church, if you will, and so we see that in the book of Acts. And, and today is one of those days where we're going to look at one of those key doctrinal issues that is addressed in the book of Acts. I want you to turn with me to chapter 8 this morning, chapter 8. We find the story of the Ethiopian man who is saved in Acts chapter 8. And we're going to begin reading at verse 25 through the end of the chapter. It says this So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasury, and he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through. He kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. In this passage, we see a couple of things that are incredibly important when it comes to how God works all of the different events around a person getting saved. There's a lot of things that are happening here, and we see how God orchestrates them all so that people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then God continues to bring people into other people's lives so that those people who get saved then will grow and follow the Lord and obey Him and do what they're supposed to do. So we, we see in this particular passage right off the bat one of the most important things that we'll ever study in the Bible and that is a willing servant. A willing servant. Right there in verse 25, it says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. 
we see over and over again in the Bible, and we say over and over again, that the God of the universe, in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, he has said, I want my children to join with me to accomplish my work. Now, that is a huge mystery to us when we really think about it very long. But that's how God has set it up. That's what he has said. He said, I want you to be my hands. I want you to be my feet. I want you to be my mouth. I want you to do things on the earth for me. I want you to work with me. And God has said, I want you to do it. You have not been saved to simply sit. You have not been saved simply to say, I'm a Christian. You have not been saved simply to say, I go to church or I go to Bible studies or I read my Bibles or I do these things. That's not the reason why you have been saved. You are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You have been saved so that you can go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. You have been saved so that you might shine for the glory of God that you will be the hands and the feet of Jesus on this earth. And the question that needs to be asked before we go any further in this study is, are you willing to be used? Are you willing to be used of God? Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to pack your bags and go somewhere. But it might. It might mean that God's calling you somewhere else to do some unique ministry somewhere somehow. Or it might mean that God is asking you to do what he wants you to do right where you are. The bottom line is this. There's not a believer on this earth that God doesn't want to use to see great things accomplished. Not one. If you're a believer and if you are still breathing... God wants to use you for his glory. Are you willing? Or is this Christianity thing something that you just do once in a while and you file it away, I did my Christian thing, now I can live my life for me, and you go on? Are you willing to be used? I want you to, let's back up and and look at chapter 8 here. Because I want you to notice what goes on here. In chapter 7 was the stoning of Stephen, and and Stephen was put to death. And in chapter 8, we see that Saul, and we've already looked at some things with Saul and how he got saved. He was in hearty agreement in putting him to death. And then it says in verse 1, And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. They stayed put. And, and they all were scattered, and the church was scattered. And God used this event, this event of a great persecution in order to build the church. Because as the believers scattered, we see from the book of Acts, what they did is they just didn't go and hide. They scattered, and they went to serve the Lord and to testify of him and to talk about him with great boldness. And that's really what the book of Acts is all about. And they were scattered and they were used of God. We read in verse 2 that it says that some devout men buried Stephen and, and, and they, they did their thing. And then in verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church. And this great persecution got worse and worse and worse. So verse 4 says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word of God. That's what we're supposed to do. Preaching the word of God, testifying, telling about Jesus Christ. This is what God means to me. 
This is how I was saved. This is the truth. They were preaching the word of God. I want you to notice, it says in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to him, to them. Philip was a willing servant. Philip was willing to even go to Samaria. The Samaritans were a group of people that the Jews didn't like. They didn't like to associate with them. They traced it back to the fact that the Samaritans were of the tribes that were scattered a little bit further and, and they intermarried more than some of the other tribes and, and they held this, this uh, animosity against them. And we see that over and over again in the Gospels. But Philip, following the example of the Lord who went out of his way to go through Samaria instead of around Samaria went out of his way to engage the woman at the well in that region, he set the example and Philip decided to follow the example of Jesus and go to those people that others maybe didn't like. If we could phrase it a different way, Philip was willing to go to those that were marginalized. Again, are you willing to be used of God? And are you willing to be used of God maybe in dealing with and talking to people Many times, the kind of people that society shuns. Are you willing to be used of God? You don't have to go anywhere in order for this to be accomplished. You are surrounded by people. You work with people. You live with people. You go to school with people. You have activities with people. You belong to clubs and groups with people. Many of those people are shunned. Many of those people are ignored or neglected. Are you willing to be used of God and follow the example of Philip and follow the example of Christ and go to some of those people and tell them about Jesus Christ? I want you to turn with me or keep going in this chapter to verse 14. It says, Now the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and so they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Something that we've seen in the book of Acts over and over again, when a new people group, when a new group received the gospel, they then were given the Holy Spirit in a dramatic way and it was God's stamp of approval saying, look, look, these people are now accepted by God. These people now belong to the kingdom of God just like those other people. And so they went and they received the Spirit of God similar to how the folks received the Spirit of God earlier in the book of Acts so that everybody would say, sure enough, God is doing that. God is working in their life. Then we come to verse 25 when it says, so when they had solemnly testified, that's the they, that's the story of the day, of the they, is that Philip was there and then they also sent down the other folks to help them out. Peter and John went down and they were there and they were testifying and they were speaking and they were doing the Lord's work. So they finished their job. They had solemnly testified, it says in verse 25, they had spoken the word of the Lord and they started back to Jerusalem and they were preaching the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. They were continuing to preach as they went back. Okay, They left, they finished their job, but they continued to preach and they were on their way back to Jerusalem. Now, here we have Philip and he's been in Samaria. He was part of the scattering of the persecution. He went down to Samaria. He preached the gospel on a regular basis. He got reinforcements. They got some help. They continued to preach. Their task pretty much is done. They're now headed back to Jerusalem. These men understood what it says in Romans chapter 10. Turn there real quick. Romans chapter 10.
Romans chapter 10. And it says in verses 12 and beyond, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher, without somebody to go and tell them? And how will they preach unless they are sent just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. As Isaiah said, declaring that our God reigns. They understood that passage. They understood that they had beautiful feet and that they were the ones that were in charge of this particular mission opportunity and they went and they did what they were supposed to do. We'll go back to Acts chapter 8 then. They're headed back to Jerusalem, having done what it is that God had told them to do, having used their feet in a beautiful way. Verse 26, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he got up and he went. God spoke, Philip responded. God spoke, Philip followed. God spoke, Philip obeyed. Do you? When God speaks, that small, still voice, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, what do you do about it? When God says, go say hi to that person. When God says, stop and help that person. When God says, encourage that person. When God says, drop by and say hi to that person. When God says, contact that person, drop a note to that person. When God says, call that person. When God says, put your busy schedule aside and stop for a moment and, and spend some time with that person. What do you do about that? When God lays it on your heart that you should do this or do that, what do you do about that? Do you respond to the Holy Spirit when he prompts? Do you respond to the Holy Spirit when he challenges you to do that? Do you, are you willing to drop things and do what it is that the Holy Spirit says you ought to do? Or is your schedule and keeping of your schedule so important that you can't do anything outside of your schedule? Is your plan so important that you aren't willing to interrupt that for the glory of Jesus Christ? This is the Holy Spirit's job. Studied the Holy Spirit for a couple of weeks. This is part of the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit's job is to prompt us. Holy Spirit's God, a job is to direct us and to point us and to get us from A to B so that God's work will continue to go on. As an ambassador of Jesus Christ, the Lord may want you to be doing this there with them. And he's prompting you and he's telling you and you can tell. People say all the time, how do you know when it is that God is speaking? You know when God's speaking to you. You, you can tell that, you know, that these things come in that it's the Holy Spirit. Let, let me rephrase it. Let me say this. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. When a great idea pops into your brain, why does that happen? What's the Holy Spirit? When this thought just comes into your mind out of nowhere, you weren't thinking about that. You weren't pondering that. And there all of a sudden is this thought. And it's a God-honoring thing. Where does that come from? That's God. That's the Holy Spirit. Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? The problem with Christianity today is not that God is silent. The problem with Christianity today is that Christians aren't hearing and listening. 
God's doing plenty of talking. Holy Spirit's doing plenty of prompting. Holy Spirit's doing plenty of guiding and, and directing. It's that we as Christians, we're just not listening that well. We need to make sure we're doing it. What keeps us from listening? Noise, clutter, sin in our lives. We need to get to a point where we're wanting to listen to the Spirit of God because we're saying, God, I want to be used of you. I want to be used of you. Well, Philip was willing to be used. He was listening. The angel of the Lord spoke to him, and he went, and he did exactly what he was supposed to do. Verse 27 says, he got up and he went. And now, we under, now we're introduced to the next character in this. There was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court of, official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and he was in charge of all of her treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning. Now, chances are he was not completely alone. Chances are he would have had uh, escorts with him. He would have had some other folks with him. This was an important man, and he would have had some other people with him. So chances are he would have had some other people with him. God was working in the heart of this unnamed man. But like all of us who come to Jesus, as God works in our hearts, we need a little help. Remember when we talked about our stories a while back and we talked about what it is that God did and how God worked in order to bring us to Jesus Christ and all the people that were involved in that? And, and with my story, there was a young man named Doug who was a part of my life who introduced me to Jesus Christ. Well, with Doug, with me, I, and I don't remember the days, but Doug told me about Jesus in that social studies class, and then class ended, and then Doug and I got together the next day at lunch, and then I was saved the next day, is when I believed. That I needed some help from Doug, uh, you need to explain this a little bit more to me. You need to lay this out a little bit more for me. I had some questions. And, and God used Doug to help those questions be answered that, that I would be in a point where I'd say, yeah, I believe. That's exactly, that's true. And I believe that with all of my heart. Well, somebody did that in your life also. And you have the opportunity to do that in somebody's life. Philip did it with this man. That this man needed a little help. That's how God does it, isn't it? Many times somebody has heard something, but I need some explanation. I, I need you to, to explain to me about this Jesus thing a little bit more. I, I, need, I need to make sense of atonement, or I need to make sense propitiation, or, or, or what it is that how Jesus can be, or the Trinity, or the Holy Spirit. I need help. And it's at that point where we have an opportunity to sit down and talk to people and let them know about Jesus Christ. God prepares hearts. And then God sends one of his own to help. Are you willing to be sent? Now, here's the thing. If you don't do it, it's not that it won't get done. God will use somebody else. But why would you pass up an opportunity to be used of God? Why would you pass up an opportunity to make a difference eternally? I mean, you know, Doug Wathen has been a part of my, my story and all sorts of people hear about Doug all the time. What a cool thing, right? Doug, Doug, Doug. Be a Doug. So the people talk about you. This person did this and you did this and God used you in some neat ways. Are you willing 
to be used. God prepares hearts, and then he asks people to come along and help out to see amazing things happen. Are you willing to be used? Well, the next couple of verses then. And I says, I said, this man would have been with a group of people, but that didn't hinder Philip at all. He heard him reading from Isaiah, and he followed exactly what it is that the Spirit of God told him to do. And the Spirit of God in verse 29 said, go up and join this chariot. Again, he was prompted, go do this. Just don't be here and kind of stay in the background. Go up there, be bold, and talk to that man. And that's exactly what he did. He continued to listen to God. And that is an important theme in this story. So he went up there and, and he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man had a great answer. And he simply was this, I, I can't understand this. I need help. This is, this is, this is hard stuff. And you know, a lot of believers are like that, aren't they? Or, or excuse me, a lot of unbelievers are like that. I, I don't quite understand what, what it's saying in this passage. And as you, as you open up your Bible and maybe you walk an unbeliever through some things, maybe it's the Romans Road or a couple other verses, and, and you're walking them through that, you need, to, you need to say, do you understand that? Don't just say the verse and assume that they get it. Explain it. Explain what the verse is saying. Help them understand it. Pretend like you're talking to me about hockey, Okay. I don't know nothing about hockey. You've got to explain it to me if you want me to watch that game. You need to explain things to people. They need to know. And we need to explain it so that they understand what is going on. And so I need some help. Well, the passage that he was reading is, is given to us here in verse 32 and 33. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and his lamb before it shears is silent. He does not open his mouth. And we know that's talking about Jesus Christ from Isaiah chapter 53. The question that he gives to Philip in verse 34. Simple question. Who's the prophet talking about? Who is this talking about? What's going on here? Is this about the guy who wrote it? Or is this about someone else? The answer in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. The answer is always the answer, Jesus. Jesus. As you're a person who wants to be used of God, keep in mind that what God wants to do in your life is he wants people to know about Jesus Christ. You need to be talking about Jesus. We need to talk about Jesus on a regular basis. This is a fascinating thing because the question was simply a direct question. Who's he talking about? And the answer is Jesus Christ. And then I want you to notice what it says in verse 35. We have seen passages like this and verses like this before. And oh, to be a person that could hear this. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Do you understand that? Starting in Isaiah 53, he then preached Jesus to him. Wouldn't you love to sit down with someone like Philip, with someone like the apostles, the disciples, and say, listen, Preach Jesus to me using your Bible, which was just the Old Testament. Wouldn't it be something to see Jesus come alive through the Old Testament scriptures? We're trying to do that in our Sunday school classes, in our curriculum, teaching the, through the, the Bible, but always looking at Jesus, always seeing the Christ connection. We want people to understand the connection of Jesus Christ into the Old Testament, and hopefully we're accomplishing that in our Sunday school classes on a regular basis. I just would have loved to have been a part of that, 
Because let's be honest, all right? And it's okay to be honest like this, everyone. Don't you read some of the Old Testament books and you finish reading a chapter or two and you think, I don't know. That's, not, that's, that's confusing. I, that's complicated. What, what is going on here? And you need to do some research. You need to find out what's going on. And Philip would have said, let me tell you about Jesus from this book. Let me tell you what Jesus has seen in this book. That would have been cool. So he began to tell him about Jesus from the scriptures, from the Old Testament scriptures. It's about Jesus. People need Jesus. There's a lot of other things that people need. But first and foremost, people need Jesus. There's a trend in Christianity today that says that what people need are good parenting skills or what people need are good marriage skills or good relational skills or what people need are knowledge on how to handle their finances or how to be this or how to do that. People need to learn those things, but they need to know about Jesus first. Jesus. Jesus transforms us so that all those other things can actually come to pass and we'll be who we need to be once we know about Jesus. And as we pour money into missions and as we pour money into ministries, we need to make sure that they're about Jesus on a regular basis. I always make sure of that. The, the, the missionaries that we support and the ministries that we support, they need to be about Jesus. That's the life-changing thing. It does no good to have good moral people that when they stand before the Lord, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's about Jesus. That's what we need to be about. And that's what Philip was about with this man. So he opened up his mouth and he taught him about Jesus from the scriptures. And then the story continues. As they were going down the road, and so obviously they began their, their journey here. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? At some point along the road, the Ethiopian man was saved. Somewhere along the line, he came to a point where he was saved. Obviously, we don't have that conversation, but what we read clearly cries out a transformed life. Look, there's water. Philip taught him many things during that time, obviously, and one of them had to be that he taught him about the public demonstration that is seen in the, in the act of obedience in water baptism. The man says, there's water. What hinders me from being baptized? In verse 36, or excuse me, in verse 37, in some of your Bibles it won't appear. In other ones of your Bibles it's bracketed. And what that means is that that particular verse is not included in, in, in the oldest and the best manuscripts that we have. It probably does not belong in our Bibles. It was more than likely added by a scribe who was helping with some clarification but there is no doubt in my mind that Philip and the man had this kind of a conversation. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that something like this was said. And why do I believe that? Because baptism is the public confession of faith expected of every believer. And I believe that Philip would have explained that to this man immediately. He would have said, you know what, now that you're saved, you need to express that publicly. And the way that you express that publicly is through this thing that is called baptism. And that's the doctrine that is so clearly taught in this particular chapter that we want to talk about for just a couple of minutes, and that is baptism. Greek word baptizo 
it's a transliteration. It's not a translation. It, it, the word doesn't translate. It means to dip or to immerse. It means a complete covering. And here at Areola Bible, we believe that the Bible teaches and we teach believers' baptism by full immersion. And some of you may not know, but our baptismal tank is, is right here. Uh, there's a section of the floor that opens up here, and you walk down some steps into this cement container, and that's where we baptize people. Uh, it's very handy to have it like that, obviously, because you don't lose any space. That's where our baptismal tank is. We believe we teach in full um, immersion. We believe we teach in what we call believer's baptism. We teach against, and we believe that the Bible teaches against what is called baptismal regeneration. And that is that baptism has any part in salvation or that there is any grace imparted at baptism at all. The Bible does not teach that. We teach against that. Baptismal regeneration. We do not believe that that is a biblical teaching in any way, shape, or form. There is no, no salvation at baptism. There is no grace imparted at baptism. And that certainly includes the popular notion of infant baptism, which is a man-made man act of religious hoop jumping that really has no biblical support. So what is baptism, and what do we teach about baptism here in this church? Well, first of all, we teach that baptism does not save. As I said a moment ago, we, we believe the Bible clearly condemns this thing called baptismal regeneration. Those who hold the view that baptism saves will build their entire case around one or two verses that are found in the New Testament. When we come to a passage that confuses us, when we come to a passage that's a little bit difficult to understand, and we land on a meaning of that passage that goes against a mountain of other passages, then the meaning that we've landed on is wrong. The Bible does not condemn contradict the Bible ever. And yet, there are times when we come upon these difficult passages of Scripture outside of baptism, and we, we, we find these difficult passages of Scripture, and there are some difficult passages of Scripture in the New Testament. There really are. There are some passages where clearly you are in the deep end, and it is overwhelmingly deep theology. And you try to figure it out, and it just doesn't fit and many times we'll take that passage and we'll say, okay, this is what we've decided it means. And then we start looking at other portions of the New Testament and we find out that what we've decided it means really doesn't jive with much of the old rest of the New Testament. Then reject what you've come up with. And the problem with us rejecting that is that we tend to operate with, it seems to me, method of theology. It seems to me this is what it says. It seems to me that this makes sense. It doesn't need to make sense to you. It needs to make sense to God. And what we've done with some passages in the Bible on occasion is we've said is if it doesn't make sense to me, it can't be true. Sure it can. The Trinity. There's one. That's a tough one. But it's true. And we accept it and we embrace it. And there are other passages like that. So there are some that will take a couple of passages and, and they will say, listen, the Bible teaches that salvation saves. No, the Bible doesn't teach that salvation saves. There are way too many passages in the Bible that teach that salvation and forgiveness of sins stands alone. 
And those two passages that they will come up with are not enough to undermine all those other passages in the Bible that very clearly teach that. Baptism is important. Baptism is significant. Baptism is an awesome, wonderful thing. But it does not save an individual. And it does not give to that individual some sort of grace that then comes to, to fruition later on in life. Baptism does not save, and the Bible teaches that. Well, what does the Bible teach about baptism? Well, let's go to a couple passages. The Bible uh, shows us by example that baptism was important. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. The Bible teaches us by example with a lot of different things. Matthew chapter 3 is the story when Jesus was baptized. It says, beginning in verse 13, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and <clears throat> you come to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The reason why Jesus was baptized was, is because baptism is an identification. You are identifying with something when you were baptized. What is it that Jesus was identifying with? Humanity. Jesus was identifying with humanity. Jesus was making that grand declaration that I am the Son of Man. I am the example. I am the Messiah. I am here to die for you. And I begin my ministry by identifying with you through the rite of water baptism. And he was fulfilling all righteousness in the fact that, that things were coming to pass and he was setting the example for us. And the Bible clearly tells us that what Jesus does, we're to do, and Jesus thought baptism was pretty important. We need to think that baptism is pretty important. Matthew chapter 28 is the next passage. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse number 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Baptism is a command. We are commanded to go and baptize. We are commanded to go and make disciples, and we are commanded to go and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's some folks every once in a while will take this passage and they'll say, you know what, this passage really doesn't apply to the church. It's at the end of the Gospels. It's kind of a unique passage. If you're going to take that stand on this particular passage, you need to go backwards into the Gospels and there's a whole bunch of things you need to toss out. And they're not willing to do that. This teaches us that that what we do is we go and, and we, we tell people about Jesus Christ, we make disciples, we make followers of Jesus Christ, we teach them, we, we help them learn, and we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that they would identify with Jesus Christ. Now in the book of Acts, you'll read a couple of times where it says, have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? 
And so you say, well, do we baptize in the name of Jesus or we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Well, if you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're baptizing in the name of Jesus. So you're, you're doing it right. This is the standard that we do because this is the words from Jesus. This is what Jesus said to go do. Go do. When in the book of Acts they say, have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? What were they talking about? They were talking about this Jesus that they've been talking about. This Jesus who was raised from the dead. This Jesus who died from our sins. Have you identified with him? Are you following him? That's what they were saying in the book of Acts. So this is the way that it ought to be done. This is the normal way to do it. And this is the way that, that should happen. The next thing about baptism is this. Baptism follows salvation. Every instance, every instance of somebody being baptized, not an implication of somebody being baptized, of somebody being baptized, they're saved first and then baptized. Every single time. And here's why. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Because in Romans chapter 6, we get a very nice picture of what baptism is all about. It says, beginning in verse 3 of Romans 6, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is simply this. It is an identification with Jesus Christ. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. Okay? Baptism is an identification with Jesus Christ. It is an outward expression of an inward reality. The Bible talks about this in Romans. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. And people say, well, this is a spiritual passage. Well, okay, let's, have you been baptized? Have you been buried? No, I've been buried. I'm still here. Okay, it, well, after you've been buried, have been raised? No, that, that, here I am. That hasn't happened to me. But that has happened to you inside. That has happened to you. That is a spiritual truth of your life. You have been buried with Jesus Christ and you have been raised to new life that you may walk and act in a new way. That's the inward reality. That has happened to you. And what baptism does is we follow the command of Jesus Christ, the example of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a picture of that very thing. Baptism is a person saying, I am, and this is what baptism is. This is one of those things. Baptism is a, is a person saying, I am willing on a Sunday morning, generally speaking, in a church, or I am willing to go out to a lake somewhere, or I am willing to go out to the river somewhere, and with a whole group of people dressed as you're dressed, I'm willing to dress differently, and I'm willing to take my towel and have no shoes on, and I'm willing to go into the water, and I'm willing to have somebody dunk me and say a few words over me and come up looking like you look after you've been all wet and walk out in front of them because I'm willing to identify with Jesus Christ. Here's what baptism is. Baptism is a person coming saying, I have believed in Jesus Christ as my Savior. What baptism is, is understanding that you have died with Christ and been buried, and you have been raised to new life. It's identifying 
with Jesus. It is expressing on the outside what has already happened on the inside. And it is something that every believer should go through. Now, baptism doesn't have nearly the significance or the importance in our society in churches like ours as it does, has in the past and, and as some other churches. I'll be honest with you. And those of you who have been in the Sunday school class on a regular basis for months and years will understand what I'm about to say is that what we've done in the Bible church movement is we've thrown out the baby with the bath. We certainly don't want to be identified with those people that practice baptismal regeneration. We don't want to be identified with those people that say that baptism is that you have to do it in order to be saved. And so what we've done is we've pushed baptism a little bit further away from salvation than we should have. Okay? Baptism and salvation go together. You're saved and you're baptized. And the Bible teaches that. You're saved and you're baptized. Here's the reason why. What was the culture that was going on when this brand new thing was being introduced to all of these people that were getting saved? Christianity was being persecuted. It was, by and large, illegal. And, and flatly illegal at certain parts of the New Testament. You couldn't do it. You couldn't be a Christian. So you have these meetings. And you'd meet in a home or you'd meet in the country or you'd meet in, in, in secret somewhere and you'd talk about it and, and all of the cool things that Christianity offers and somebody says, yeah, I believe. Well, let me walk you through that. Let me explain this to you. And they explain it to you. Yeah, I believe and I accept Jesus Christ my Savior. And they would pray, pray, pray a prayer. Or they'd say, yeah, I believe. And, 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 and we'd know that we're dealing with new life. And then they would say to him, excellent. Let's wander on down to the river now. And you need to make a public, public announcement, a public proclamation that you now belong to Jesus Christ. And that's done through baptism. Well, that kept a lot of false converts from things, didn't it? Because now you were about to put your life on the line, your job on the line, your social standing on the line, your family on the line. You know what's interesting? As you talk to missionaries and as you study missions around the world, do you know that people don't consider that you have changed your life and become a Christian until you are baptized? Not that they're saying baptized saves you, but they are recognizing the importance in some of these cultures around the world of, of renouncing your old and standing with Jesus Christ in a public way. And they look at that person and they say, now that's a follower of Jesus Christ. We have lost some of the importance and the significance of baptism in our, in our world and, and in our church and in other churches like ours many times. Baptism is incredibly important. And it's something that all believers ought to do. And that's what it is. The meaning of baptism is that it is indeed an outward picture of an inward reality. And they needed to take a stand in biblical times and be baptized. We need to take a stand and be baptized. If you've never been baptized, I would challenge you to look at the scriptures and talk to the Lord about it and say, do I need to be baptized? Lord, do I need to be baptized? Should I make that stand? And when you share with a person and they get saved, you need to help them understand that, you know what, after you get saved, you make a public declaration and you get baptized and you follow him in obedience in this thing called baptism. I have said over and over again this morning, that there is no special grace given at baptism. But there is a unique special blessing from the Lord at baptism. 
And the reason why that is more than anything is because a person is willing to stand up in front of a crowd and follow him in obedience. And God will always bless that action. Always. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 8. One more verse and we'll be done. Well, a couple verses actually. It says in verse 38, and he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. You've done your job, Philip. I'm taking you somewhere else. Wouldn't that have been something? They come up out of the water. Now, honestly, I mean, think about this. They come up out of the water. They're done. Philip's done his job. And the Lord takes him and he's gone and is transplanted somebody somewhere else. That would have been cool. All right. Philip was willing to obey and that God blessed him and used him in that way. And then it says this, and the eunuch no longer saw him but went his way rejoicing. Folks, there is great joy in obedience. Great joy in obedience. In this passage, we see beautiful feet. We see listening. We see believing. We see obeying. We see how it all comes together in God is forming the church and giving us doctrine so that we might stand apart from the world and be unique for Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about.